Every Sunday, as we leave the church, the last words that we hear are, go be the church. We're going to have the opportunity to do that in the next few days and months. As certain issues come before us, we need to stand by the word of God. These are not only political issues, they are moral issues. They don't need campaigning, they need prayer. We as the leadership of True North here believe that God is leading us today to address those issues. So it's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning. His name is Michael Spencer. Mike served as pastor for 23 years and now serves as the founder and president of Project Life Voice, a gospel-driven human rights organization that equips and inspires pro-life ambassadors to speak compellingly and to act sacrificially on behalf of the most vulnerable, the most abandoned, and most oppressed among us, our pre-born neighbors targeted by elective abortion. Mike has a burden to awaken the church to the plight of mothers facing unplanned pregnancies and to the little ones they carry. He travels extensively throughout the United States and beyond, speaking in churches, at banquets, and conferences, and also on high school and university campuses. He addresses thousands of students and adults each year. Mike is a gifted and much sought-after communicator who brings a pastor's heart to the often emotional and divisive issue of abortion in a way that is both gracious and compelling. So, Brother Mike, come and share what God has placed upon your heart this morning. Well, good morning. I am glad to be with you. It's a real delight to worship with you. I know that we, as the body of Christ, endure an awful lot of criticism uh, from those outside of the church. Some of it, unfortunately, we've probably brought on ourselves, but there is nothing in my mind quite like the body of Christ. And I am blessed to be with you and to worship with you this morning. I do want to thank Pastor Rex. Uh, I know that he and his family are away on vacation this morning, getting some, I'm sure, a much-deserved break. But um, I want to thank him for entrusting me with the opportunity to address you today, especially on such an important subject. In his wonderful book, Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, author Hadley Argus, Arcus tells the story of visiting the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. with a friend. And at one point, as they were going throughout the museum, they entered a room that housed a large vat filled with the shoes of Jewish victims that had been collected by the Nazis as they sought to extract anything that they could use again or sell. And at one point in this story, he describes the experience this way, quote, And what came flashing back instantly at that moment were those searing lines of Justice McLean, in his dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott decision. You may think that the black man is merely chattel, but he bears the impress of his maker and is amenable to the laws of God and man, and he is destined to an endless existence. I too, like I'm sure many of you, have had the opportunity to visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I have seen that same vat of shoes, and it is troubling, to say the least. Nevertheless, Arcus's next sentence stunned me when I first read it. Here's what he wrote. Quote, 
the sufficient measure of things here is that the Nazis looked at their victims and thought that the shoes were the real durables. What a poverty of soul to look at fellow image bearers and see only their shoes. This is just one reason why I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worldly thinking blinds us, causing us to value others only to the extent that they benefit us. But the gospel empowers us to look beyond one's shoes to find a precious creation of Christ destined to an endless existence, to borrow those words, and worthy of our love and of our legal protection. This morning, I am going to address you on a very serious and very important subject, and that is the sacredness or the sanctity of human life and the threat that abortion is to that. Um, many, well, our nation, first of, all, first of all, is bitterly divided and deeply confused over the issue of abortion. Tragically, and I think sadly, many of our churches are as well. And I, I know that's not the case here. I'm, I'm well aware of the fact that you are being taught biblically and that that's not the case here. Nonetheless, I want to give attention to three questions today in an, in an effort to bring clarity to this issue. And the three questions that I want to address are, first of all, what does the science of human embryology teach about the human embryo? The second question that I want to give attention to is, what does the Bible teach about um, the value of human life? And then finally, I want to address the question, what is our duty living in an abortion-infatuated culture? What is our duty specifically to young moms and dads who feel cornered by life's, ex uh, life's experiences or circumstances and to the little ones that they carry? Um, I want to start, though, by revisiting um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are very familiar with this passage. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, and I want to read that for us again here. Luke records this story for us, and it starts in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. Just listen along. This is what we read. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, 
go and do likewise. Now, the moral here to this parable is obvious enough for anyone who reads it, and that is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that commandment that Jesus gives here in the context of this parable is first given in Leviticus chapter 19. So Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He also states in Mark's gospel that this is the second of the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, interestingly, I have opportunity occasionally to speak in high school um, uh, in high schools to high school audiences. And I will often read this passage and ask them, who are the bad guys in the story? And I find it intriguing because the answer is always the same. They never say the robbers. They immediately gravitate to saying, well, the priest and the Levite, which I think is really intriguing because all they did was walk around on the other side of the road. They didn't beat the guy. They didn't rob him. But all of our ire, and this is understandable, isn't it? We're like those high school students that, I, that, that answer that way. Our ire, our disgust is focused on the priest and the Levite. Why? Because we recognize that those who claim to love God should behave differently than robbers. We expect more out of them. So does Christ. Um, in fact, Christ expects more out of anybody who claims to be his follower. Uh, now, this raises an obvious question. But is the preborn child, the child in utero, is that person, is that a person, and is that person my neighbor? And if so, what duties do I have to that little one? Now, this is an, a serious and important subject, of course, and, um, and I recognize that it's also a deeply personal and painful subject for many, and undoubtedly in a church this size, that's the case for some here today. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm speaking to somebody who has either had an abortion or has been responsible for an abortion decision. And I realize that much of what I'm going to say is going to be difficult for you to hear today because, as I trust you understand, I have to speak very biblically and therefore very boldly to this very important issue. But I want to say this to you. I also want to speak to this very redemptively. I want to bring the gospel to bear on this subject. And and so if you have been impacted by an abortion decision, please know that I intend to speak very directly uh, to you toward the end of my message And I want to speak redemptively to you. I want to talk to you about God's grace and forgiveness. So I guess what I'm asking you to do, if you've been impacted by an abortion decision, is to just hang in with me here, okay, this morning. And I promise that I'm going to share some things that will be encouraging and comforting to you. So let's dive in. I want to dive into this first question. What does the science of human embryology teach about the human embryo? Now, this is going to be eighth grade level science, and I'm going to do it very quickly, but it's important that we lay this foundation. First of all, the science of human embryology teaches us that human life begins at conception or at fertilization. This is not being debated in any serious manner today in academic circles. We know when human life begins. In surveying 5,577 biologists, Stephen Jacobs, um, PhD at the University of Chicago, surveyed these 5,577 biologists and discovered that 96% of them affirmed that a new human life begins at conception or at fertilization. Now, I think even more remarkably is the fact that 85% of those who were polled actually identified as pro-choice. They actually supported abortion but still conceded the full biological humanity of the unborn child at the single-cell zygote stage, the earliest stage of development. Now, 
this survey is not alone. I could give you many quotes. Here's another one. Let me jump ahead there. Ward Kisher, a PhD at the University of Arizona, a human embryologist, said this. Every human embryologist in the world knows that the life of the new individual human being begins at fertilization. It is scientific fact. Okay? This is settled science. Look, horse breeders know when they have a horse. And IVF labs know when they have a human being. This is not difficult to understand given our medical technology and advancements today. Secondly, uh, the science of human embryology teaches that from the earliest stages of development, the preborn is distinct living human and whole. And let me break those words down very quickly, and I'm going to use you very quickly as a working illustration. From the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were these three things. Well, four three things. Distinct, living, human, and whole. By distinct, I mean that you were a separate being in your mother. That you had a DNA that was completely different than your mom's or dad's. You had a blood type, a race, and a gender that were also potentially different than your mother's. You were a distinct individual. Not only that, but you were living. Meaning by that, by that, I mean you were alive and growing, doing the things that living organisms do, like metabolizing food for energy, growing through cellular reproduction and responding to stimuli. Not only were you distinct and living, but you were human. The law of biogenesis says that we produce after our own kind. Monkeys give birth to monkeys. Humans give birth to humans. And you were whole. Now, I don't mean that you were fully developed or that you were mature. Of course not. But you were gen genetically speaking, you were whole. Everything you needed to develop into the young adult or the person, the adult that you are today, was present in you at that earliest stage of your development. So very quickly, a lot of people imagine human development to go like this. That you start out over here at day one as this weird alien-like mutated fertilized egg thing. And then over the next nine months, you slowly gestate into or morph into a baby and then you're born. And that's not how it works. Now, again, if you'll just indulge me here, I, I realize most of you probably know this, but you were never a sperm cell or an egg cell. Those cells were functioning parts of other human beings, namely your parents. And when those two cells came together, you came to be. Now, most everybody knows that. But here's something you may not know. You were never a fertilized egg. There is such a thing as the process of fertilization, where the sperm penetrates the egg. There is such a thing as an egg that gets fertilized. But until... And there is... There is debate within the scientific community as to when in the short 24-hour period of time you actually have a human being, okay? Some say the moment the sperm penetrates the egg. Others say no, it's when sperm-egg fusion takes place somewhere later in that 24-hour period. I don't know the answer. I'm not a scientist, and scientists disagree. Here's what I do know. Until you have a human being, you only have a fertilized egg. And after you have a human being, you no longer have a fertilized egg. You now have a human being. In other words, the two cannot coexist at the same time. The sperm cell and the egg cell have to die to themselves to give the, and give their constituents over to a new entity, namely you, an embryo. In, in other words, you, have to you cannot exist at the same time that the egg does, whether it's fertilized or otherwise, okay? That's the point I'm trying to make, all right? Now, why am I making a big deal about that? Because here's why. Because we're not interested in defending eggs. I have no interest in defending eggs. I have an interest in defending image bearers. Human beings created in God's image at their earliest single-cell zygote stage of development. Randy Alcorn says it really well. He says it like this. He's the, the, well -re the renowned uh, Christian and pro-life author. He said, something non-human doesn't become human by getting older and bigger. Whatever is human is human from the beginning. And he's right. Our humanity, humanity does not come to us slowly or in part. Rather, it is who and what we are from our beginning. Therefore, to refer to the early embryo as a potential human being, or even the later fetus as a potential human being, as many do, is scientifically baseless. Although there was a time when you were a potential fifth grader, there was never a time when you were a potential human being because, as celebrated geneticist Jerome Lejeune points out, 
There is no such thing as a pre-embryo, since by definition, the embryo is the youngest form of a being, and he's right. Now, let me leave the science behind, or at least move on from that here, and let's address the second question. What does the Bible teach about the value of human life? Well, several things. Um, it, it teaches several things. First of all, that there's something unique about us, something special about us as human beings, something sacred about us as human beings. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We read this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. Now, some of your Bible translations might say, for we are God's craftsmanship. Okay, same thing, same idea. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> We're his craftsmanship. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus says it this way. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus believes that human beings have greater worth than animals. Now, to those cat lovers of you here this morning, I hope I'm not stepping on your toes, okay? Jesus does not say that animals have no value. He's not saying in this passage that sparrows have no value. What he is saying, though, is that as human beings, we have greater value. And the reason is because we are God's image bearers. Now, we're not instrumentally valuable. We are intrinsically valuable um, because we are his image bearers. Now, I love saying this because I know this flies in the face of the narrative that's being pushed and peddled out there about you and I as Christians. But the fact of the matter is, is we're the tolerant ones. We are the inclusive ones because we're the ones who say every human beings, every human being matters. Black, white, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, born, and unborn. Let me tell you a quick story. This happened to me at the University of Florida. I was down there six or seven years ago doing pro-life work on the campus. And this throng of students had gathered around me and around some other pro-lifers that were there doing work with me. And um, they were rather agitated, rather angry with me. And one young man, 20-year-old or so college student, very, very angry, and he was kind of the ringleader of this little group that I was uh, speaking to, wagged his finger in my face, and this is what he said to me. And I'll quote him as best as I can remember this. He said, I'm gay, and I want to know if the babies you're trying to save are gay babies. Do you still want to save them? What do you think my response to that question was? Don't be shy. What was it? Of course. Now, I granted his premise, being that we're born that way. I granted the premise. And I said, of course I want to save them. I said, now let me ask you the same question. If the babies that I'm here at the University of Florida today that I'm trying to save are, as you call them, gay babies, are you willing to join me in my effort in saving them? What do you think his answer was? No. So my response, well, then who's the friend of gay babies? You or me. I want them to live, and you don't care if they die. Brothers and sisters, we're the tolerant ones. Are we perfect? No. But nobody does inclusivity and tolerance better than the body of Christ. Do not be intimidated by voices on the other side of this issue. And by the way, it's our view, this view, the biblical view, that provides the only unshakable foundation for human equality. Human equality has to be rooted in something or founded on something that you and I share in equal measure. Well, look around the room. There's only one thing we share in equal measure. It's not skin color. It's not gender. It's not hair. Some of you have it. Some of us didn't need it, right? The only thing that you and I share in equal measure is our humanity. And nobody has more of it or less of it than any other human being. And you can't chip away at that or parse that or dissect that and have anything left of it at the end of the day. In other words, I can't beat my chest and boast of my commitment to human equality and then say something like this. 
I'm all for human equality except for women. I think they're inferior to men. Well, the minute I say that, I'm not for human equality. Would you agree? How about this? I'm all for human equality except for Hispanics or Asians or blacks. The minute I say accept, I am not for human equality. How about this? I'm all for human equality except for really small people who are located inside of other people. Ah, that's not human equality. The minute you say accept, you have kicked the table legs out from under that. You have gutted it of all meaning. We're the tolerant ones. Now, the Bible also teaches that we are so special, so sacred, so valuable that God warned in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. In Exodus 20-13, the Ten Commandments we read, you shall not murder. Couldn't be any more clear. 1 Corinthians 3-17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. The Bible also teaches, or I should say consistently treats, the unborn child as a valuable person. Consistently, Old and New Testament alike, Denny spoke uh, this morning of Jeremiah. We see that same kind of thing with respect to Job, with Jacob and Esau, all right, with uh, Samson. But let me turn your attention to Luke chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry, Psalm 139. Let me read that for you. Psalm 139, 13. This is kind of the go-to verse for Christians for the pro-life community and for good reason. We read, David, write, David writes, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now the operative word there is the word me. You see, David doesn't merely think that he came from an embryo. He believes he was an embryo, just like I believe I was a fifth grader at one point. In other words, David didn't think that something in his mother's womb later became him. It was he who was in his mother's womb, okay? Now, let me, let me read to you uh, from Luke chapter 1. You can turn there if you want. I just want to read a paragraph here, and it's on the screen there for you. But this is in Luke chapter 1, where um, we have two pregnant women, the story of two pregnant ladies, Mary who's pregnant with Jesus, who is only days or weeks old of gestation, days or only days or weeks of gestation in Mary's womb. So he weighs only ounces or grams. Uh, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who Greg Kokel humorously refers to at this point as John the fetus. Okay? Now John the Baptist, according to Luke, the earlier part of Luke chapter 2, is about six months of gestation in his mother's womb. So he weighs about three pounds or so. So he dwarfs Jesus. All right? Or Jesus is dwarfed by him. I'm not sure how to word that, but you know what I'm getting at. He's much larger than Jesus, okay? And this is the story that we read here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Mary has traveled uh, to Judea to visit Zechariah and, and Elizabeth in her home. And this is what we read in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, I'm going to go somewhere with this, but you need to know this. The Greek word for baby is brephos. Okay, I I promise you I'm going to go somewhere here with this. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, there's that word brephos again, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, if we stopped there, this would be mildly compelling. Probably not compelling at all to somebody who has no regard for God's word, for a non-Christian. But even for us, it would be mildly compelling. But here's what makes this so fascinating to me. If you turn to Luke chapter 2, and let me do that on the screen here for you, and we're going to read here in verse 12. Remember, 
chapter 1, we're talking about two babies in utero, and the word is brephos, baby, brephos. Now, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus has been born. He is out of the womb. He's in a manger, and we read this, verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby, brephos, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. If you believe, as I do, that God's word is the inspired, infallible word to man, that he took the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament, carried them along, guarded them, protected them, and guided them as they wrote. If you believe that, and I do, God is the ultimate communicator. He chooses his words very carefully. It's no mistake or coincidence that the same Greek word is used to refer to babies both in the womb and out of the womb. Now, again, I know that's not compelling to, uh, to non-Christians, but that ought to be really compelling to us. And it ought to be enough reason that every pulpit in America would be lit on fire against the evil of abortion. And it is a scandal of epic proportions that the vast majority of churches in America have gone silent when it comes to speaking up for those who have no voice, even though we have been commanded so clearly to do so. The Bible consistently treats the unborn child as valuable persons. Therefore, therefore, our identity remains the same throughout time and change. You are the same person now as you were then in your mother's womb. I don't mean you look the same. I don't mean you function the same. I don't mean you, you have the same value system or any of that stuff. But I mean you're the same being, the same person as you were then. I'm going to introduce you to somebody that most of you, the adults in the room anyway, will already know him or know of him. Um, but let me ask you, does anybody know who Samuel Alexander Armas is? Anybody recognize that name? Okay, when you see his photo, the adults anywhere, you're going to remember him because it's a fascinating story. In 1999, when Samuel was in his mother's womb halfway through the pregnancy, about 20 weeks or so, he was diagnosed through prenatal testing with a condition called spina bifida. Pretty serious condition, but relatively treatable if surgery is performed early on, preferably in utero. So the surgeon said to Julie, his mother Julia, um, if you will let me perform surgery on you, I can go through your abdomen into your uterus and I can perform surgery on Samuel and radically uh, correct this, substantially correct this problem. Of course, she granted permission. On the day of the surgery, not only was the surgical team in the room, but they also invited in a professional photographer who snapped some stunning photos. The photo I'm going to show you made it into USA Today newspaper. Now, I give you a little warning here if you've got a real um, weak stomach. This is a little bit graphic, but it's actually kind of beautiful. What you're going to see is a small incision in his mother's uterus, and you're going to see his arm has flopped out, and he's actually touching the surgeon's glove. He's 21 weeks of gestation at this stage in, in development. So here's that photo. I don't know why it's jumping to the next one there. I'm sorry. Well, cheese and crackers, what's going on here? Daniel, can you, can you make it stop on that slide right there? thing has a demon. All right, there we go. That is Samuel. Isn't that beautiful? You see two worlds sort of touching each other. Now, I'm not arguing that Samuel was deliberately reaching out to say, hey, surgeon, how are you doing today? Let's give me five. No, I'm not making that claim. He was actually under anesthetic. There's no way he was doing this knowingly. But what I am making, the point I am making is an obvious one. There's somebody in there. Not something that would later become Samuel. Samuel was in there. Now, I'm going to fast forward the clock of his life, and you're going to see the photo that you've already seen. This is Samuel 10 years later. You recognize that left arm? You've seen it before. Same kid. Now, why am I putting this up there? To make an obvious point, and forgive me, indulge me here. If Samuel's mother would have aborted Samuel, it's Samuel she would have aborted. 
not something that later became Samuel. He is the same person now as he was then. You are the same person now as you were then. Fourthly, the Bible teaches that God has a special place in his heart for children, for precious, innocent children. In Psalm 68, verse 5, we read that God, God is described as a father to the fatherless. In Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 14, um, you know the story where the children are coming to Jesus and the, the disciples are basically blocking them and saying, leave them alone, leave the master alone. And Jesus rebukes them and says this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, we read this, better to have a large millstone hung around one's neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to bring harm to a child. Now, conversely, the so-called pro-choice position says that there's nothing special about human beings, at least not in utero, that humans are only instrumentally valuable, not intrinsically valuable, that their worth is determined based on what they can do or based on what they possess. They've got measurable heartbeat or a measurable brain activity or they're going to make me happy or they could live outside of their mother's womb on their own. These are the, the subjective standards and tests that the, the, that the powerful often use to, uh, to do away with the weak. Now this position, and again, I don't mean to be unkind, and by the way, I should just say up front, I was on the other side of this issue. I grew up in Detroit in a very good home, but it was not a Christian home, and I didn't come to faith in Christ until, 20, until I was 21 years old. That was September 10th of 1983. It was a Saturday night when I came to faith in Christ. The next morning, I'm in church for the first time, and about eight or nine months later, the church that I started attending in Detroit showed the film The Silent Scream. And I saw with my own eyes for the first time what I had been supporting. I saw what abortion did to little boys and girls, and I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. This position draws a distinction between humanness and personhood. And I want you to know, this is, an, this is an artificial distinction. You hear it all the time from those on the other side. I hear it on university campuses. Well, yes, Mike, I, I agree it's a human being, biologically, but it's not a fill-in-the-blank. Say it loud, loud. You got it. I heard a few of you. It's not a, it is a human being, but it's not, a, it's not a person, right? This is a trick. This is exactly what the Nazis did with the Jews. They didn't ultimately deny them their humanity. They denied them their personhood status. We saw it again in our own land and throughout many other countries as well. We're slave owners dehumanized their slaves by acknowledging they were human beings, but by, by stripping them of their personhood status. We are repeating history in America with legalized abortion. Peter Singer is the radical ethicist at Princeton University, and this is what he said. He's a defender of abortion through all nine months of pregnancy and even an advocate of legalizing infanticide, killing infant children up to 28 days after birth. He thinks parents ought to have a right to do that. Okay, Here's what he says. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Do you see what he's doing? He's acknowledging their biological humanity, but he's denying their personhood. He goes on to say the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Now, in fairness to my pro-choice friends, not all of them would agree with this. They, many of them would say that's radical. But this is where this worldview naturally leads. Um, this view says that only certain people matter. And only if they measure up to some arbitrary subjective standard that the powerful have established for the weak. This is a position of bigotry and intolerance. I love how John Stone Street said it. 
He said, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And he's right. And we have the ovens of Auschwitz and the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge and the, and the dumpsters behind America's abortion clinics to make that point. In 1990, now I'm forgetting, I, I, I want to say it was 1999, my wife and I was pastoring a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we lived. And um, through my involvement in the pro-life community there, I met a young man named Tim. And Tim had lifted a little black baby girl from a dumpster behind an abortion clinic in Detroit in my hometown. He lifted her little body out. She was halfway through the pregnancy. She filled my hand. She had been aborted by a saline solution abortion, which means her body had not been dismembered. She was still intact, okay? But her skin had been radically burned. She'd been burned from her mother's womb. And my wife and I had the opportunity to hold that little lifeless girl in my hands, in our hands. And I hear all the rhetoric from the other side on university campuses and in other settings. My body, my choice. Don't like abortion, don't have one. You're a man. You have no right to speak to the issue. They don't say that anymore because now nobody knows what a man or a woman is. But it always felt good, by the way. You're a man. It's like, thanks. I got the frame of a fifth grade girl. Say it again. Tell my wife. Here, call my wife. Tell her. Feels sounds good. When you hold in your hand the product of choice, a dead little girl, all of a sudden, all the sloganeering and all the cliches disintegrate under the weight of that child. And I wouldn't do this, but oh, how I wish I could. I'd like to take that little girl to every high school and university campus that I go to and hold her out to my opponents and say, you tell me this is reproductive justice. You tell me this is women's rights. This is demonic. And anybody who's willing to look at it objectively would see it that way. What is abortion? Let's just define it. Abortion is the intentional and unjust killing of innocent human beings at their most vulnerable stage of development in the most barbaric manner imaginable. Abortion dismembers, decapitates, and disembowels little boys and girls in their mother's wombs or burns them from their mother's wombs or invades the womb with a long syringe injecting their little hearts with poison to, inject, uh, to, to inflict a heart attack on them in utero. Now, if you don't believe me that abortion kills human beings, how about the abortionists? Let them speak for themselves. This is Curtis Boyd. And I'm going to step down here so I can actually read these quotes. Curtis Boyd is an abortionist. He says this, am I killing? Yes, I am. I know that. Leroy, uh, I'm sorry, Willie Parker, another abortionist. He says, abortion kills a human being. It is intention the intentional disruption of a pregnancy. And then here's one. And this goes all the way back to 1976. So this isn't some new epiphany for these guys. Arthur Morris, an abortionist, says, abortion is legalized destruction of life. We tell her exactly like it is. When they abort, they will be aborting a small baby. How can the church remain silent and remain faithful to Christ at the same time? We cannot, can we? Let me move to the last question that I want to give attention to. What is our duty? If we accept, and I'm not assuming all of you do, but if you, like me, accept the clear teaching of human embryology, that at, the, that, that at the early stage of development you have a distinct living and whole human being biologically, and if you accept the clear teaching of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that treats the preborn like valuable persons, then the obvious question for us is, what is our duty, not only to the unborn, but to their young mothers and fathers who feel cornered by life's circumstances? Well, first of all, let me say this. Our response to abortion is a gospel issue. It's a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. The moral, uh, the, the moral of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that we are our brother's keeper. 
That, that the boundaries of moral responsibility extend to include all human beings, even strangers, whether they've been beaten and abandoned in a ditch or denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb. Our response to those who suffer unjustly is a measure of, of the authenticity of our faith. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. No one is more least in our culture today than the unborn child who is stuck in the crosshairs of choice. Now, tragically, as I've already stated, scores of pastors and churches have turned a blind eye to the preborn who are threatened by abortion. Edmund Burke, the philosopher, said it well. He said, the only thing needed for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. I love that quote. I love the sentiment of it. But when you think about it, do those who stand by idly in the face of evil deserve to be called good? Shouldn't that word be reserved for those who, when they are confronted with the opportunity to intervene, actually risk their own comfort and safety to do so? In other words, good men and women do not stand by idly while their brothers and sisters in Christ or their fellow image bearers are being destroyed. When nearly 23, actually well over 20, when well over 2,300 children are systematically killed every day in the United States by legalized abortion, we should not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can remain faithful to Christ on the sidelines. James made this very clear. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Our marching orders are very clear. We read this in Ephesians 5.11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I'm just curious, how many of you have seen the film The Sound of Freedom in the last couple of weeks? Okay, a good number of you. Powerful film. I love that film. And if you haven't seen it, I, I would highly recommend seeing it. But the film exposes the evil of sex trafficking. It, and it does it powerfully. And by the way, the only people complaining about that film today are those who hate the fact that they have exposed the evil of sex trafficking. Everybody else is seeing it as powerful, right? The role of the church, one of the roles of the church, is to expose evil. Ephesians 5 could not be more clear about that. Whether we're talking about the evil of sex trafficking or the evil of racism or the evil of abortion. It may not be always the most pleasant work, but it is our job. In Proverbs 31, verse 8, we read this. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. We are their voice. And if we don't speak up for the preborn, nobody will. If the body of Christ won't do it, it won't get done. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you continue to read on in that verse, it says, If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? We're not merely to expose the evil of abortion. We must do whatever we can to protect the unborn and to minister to their young parents. Now, I, let me address two quick objections. One is that you pro-lifers aren't really pro-life. You're only pro-birth. That you have a fetus fetish, they say. That we're obsessed with saving the fetus in the womb, but when the fetus comes out, we disappear. We're a bunch of hypocrites. We don't care about the babies then. We don't care about their young mothers. We want to take away all welfare programs, blah, blah, blah. Nothing could be farther from the truth, and it's demonstrably proven. Okay? Right now in the U.S., there are approximately 700 abortion clinics. Many of those are owned and operated by men for financial profit off of young women who are in a crisis and off of the blood of their children. And these guys are driving Lamborghinis and living in gated communities because abortion is big, big money. Now, do the math. Follow the money here with me. Let's do the math. 700 abortion clinics, many owned by men for financial profit off of women and off the blood of children. Would it surprise you to know that in the United States right now, there are nearly 3,000 pregnancy care centers? 
the vast majority of which are run by women for women at no cost to women. It's all free. You want an ultrasound at Planned Parenthood? They start at 150 bucks. You want one at a pregnancy care center? They're free. It's all free. I know from where I speak because I partner with a lot of these ministries and I do a lot of speaking for them. I get into a lot of these centers. It's all free. And by the way, the ladies that are running these centers aren't driving Lamborghinis. They're like driving a Kia or something. I don't know. I just lost the Kia audience, didn't I? Okay. But they're not driving Lamborghinis is the point, right? Um, the fact of the matter is, is nobody loves young moms and babies on both sides of the birth canal, born and unborn, like the body of Christ. Could we do it better? Yes. If we could wake, wake the rest of the church up to get on board with us, yes, we could do it better. But I'd say the pro-life community is doing a pretty good job given their scarce resources. Here's another objection I want to deal with. Because we have a duty uh, to those who have aborted their children and who regret it. Now, some will say, yeah, but if we speak out on Sunday morning from the pulpit on this subject, we're going to inflict more pain and more guilt, more shame on those who have aborted their children or have been responsible for abortion in some way. Let me just say this. I'm sensitive to this. I pastored for 23 years. I have a shepherd's heart. I don't want to inflict injury on anybody. But the greatest injury the body of Christ inflicts on those who are post-abortive, those who have aborted their children, the greatest injury that's being inflicted is pastoral silence. Because when the church goes silent, they're communicating one of two messages, both regrettable and both damaging. Either abortion is not so bad, or the gospel is not so good, or both. These are horrible messages. We can and we must do better. Paul said, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, I want to speak just briefly here to those of you who do have abortion experiences in your past. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you've been responsible for one. I want to speak to you. Let me just repeat myself here. There is no sin that is so bad or so evil, but that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is not greater still. Abortion is no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that. I trust you do as well. If you've had an abortion or been responsible for one, you don't need one more drop of grace than any other person in this room this morning. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. That said, you do need grace. And you do need to confess your sin. You don't need an excuse for your sin. You need an exchange. His righteousness for your sinfulness. And so I would say to you what I would say to anybody else in this room, whether the sin is lust, lying, gossip, slander, or abortion. Go to God the Father through Christ the Son. Confess your sin. Acknowledge Christ as Lord. Accept him into your life and accept that gift of grace because it's yours for the asking. That's the good news. In, John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read these words. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. Why are so many churches hiding it? Do we believe the gospel that we claim to believe or not? If we really believed it, we wouldn't be hiding it. We wouldn't say, well, we're not going to preach out against adultery because we might turn adulterers away from the gospel or we might offend them. No. It's only when we recognize that we are sinners that we recognize our need for a savior. We should be exposing this sin and every other sin. This is the job of the church. Philippians 1.6 Paul writes, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. If all Jesus did was forgive us of our sin, again, whatever that sin is, lust, lying, gossip, slander, abortion, if all he did was forgive us of our sin, he would be worthy of praise for all of eternity. Yes? Can I get a witness? Yes. Amen? But he does more than that. 
Philippians says that he'll carry on to completion the work that he has begun. In other words, Jesus doesn't just promise to forgive us of our sin. He promises to restore us. To heal us, to restore us to kingdom usefulness. So that when God the Father looks down, he doesn't see Cindy, the, the gal who had an abortion, or Joe, the guy who's responsible for it. He sees Cindy, the saint. Joe, the saint. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to plead with you today. If you've got an abortion experience in your past, first confess it to God. And then go to a pastor or a pastor's wife or an elder or an elder's wife and talk to them. You're going to be among friends in this church. I know that. You're not going to be judged. That's the narrative that's out there. It's just not true. You'll be loved. Now, in closing, I want to take just a few minutes here to tell you about a serious threat to the children and the families of our state here in Ohio. The Supreme Court decision, and this is really the primary reason that that Pastor Rex invited me in. The Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson, which was uh, decided over a year ago in June, um, and the ensuing fall of Roe v. Wade was a tremendous victory to say the least, but the battle for life is far from over. Today, the pro-abortion lobby has adopted a new tactic and that is passing state constitutional amendments to enshrine abortion through all nine months of pregnancy into law, into our Constitution. This has proven a highly effective strategy. Since Dobbs, three states, three states, um, Montana, uh, Vermont, and I'm sorry, Michigan, Vermont, and California, have all three passed constitutional amendments guaranteeing a so-called right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. In addition, three other states, Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, all tried to pass pro-life amendments to protect the right to life, and all three of those efforts failed. That means that six states in one year failed to secure lasting protection for the unborn. This effort to codify abortion into law through all nine months of pregnancy is underway right now here in Ohio. Two pro-abortion groups, Ohio, uh, I'm sorry, Protect Choice Ohio and Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom, are working on a ballot initiative to amend our Constitution. And these groups have pledged 50 to 70 million dollars. They're going to pour that into our state uh, to see this um, amendment passed on November 7th. Money which will undoubtedly be used to confuse voters and to obscure their real intentions for this amendment. Now, it's important to understand the gravity of a constitutional amendment. Our state constitution is the supreme law of of our state. All other laws are either struck down or upheld based on their constitutionality, of course. Now, it's nearly impossible to overstate the damage that will be caused by codifying abortion into law in our constitution. Now, because of the way the ballot initiative has been carefully crafted by attorneys for the other side, Because of the way it's been crafted, if it passes, it will do these three things, actually four things. First of all, it will undo all of Ohio's existing pro-life laws. They will be written off the books, okay? Abortion will be legal through all nine months of pregnancy. Secondly, it will do away with our state's um, parental rights laws. That means, moms and dads, you will no longer have the right to um, consent to or even to know that your 14-year-old daughter is getting an abortion or that your 14-year-old son is being responsible for one. Thirdly, this will free abortion clinics from adhering to crucial health and safety standards that are intended to protect women, obviously further jeopardizing the health and the lives of women. Now, furthermore, fourthly, the language of this proposed amendment is not constrained to abortion alone, but will also allow gender dysphoric minors to obtain irreversible sex-altering therapies, medications, and surgeries. And to do so, hear me, without parental consent or knowledge. 
Now, if you think I'm exaggerating this, on the table in the foyer after the service, see me, I have copies of the ballot initiative in the exact wording, their wording, not mine. And then uh, Created Equal, the pro-life group out of Columbus, has uh, put together this really cool thing where they took the ballot initiative and they circled the keywords, the operative, kind of the weasel words, and they've written in the margin to help you understand what this will really mean. So you can see this for yourself. Now, in Ohio... Um, for the Constitution to be amended right now, only a bare majority of votes is needed. That means 50% plus one is enough to, to um, amend our, our Constitution, right? However, the, General Ohio, or the Ohio General Assembly recently filed a joint resolution which proposes to raise that threshold to 60%. And so we have the opportunity to vote on this, to raise this threshold from 50% plus one to 60% in a special statewide election on Tuesday, a day after, day after tomorrow. All right, it will be called Issue 1 on the ballot. Some of you have seen the signs. Maybe you have those in your lawn. If this is passed, if Issue 1 is passed, this will protect our state constitution from outside influences, and it will, protect, uh, it will give us a fighting chance to protect the preborn in November when the ballot initiative appears um, uh, on, on the ballot. So it is critical if you want to see our, our constitution protected and if you want to see the unborn protected, it is critical to vote yes on Tuesday um, on issue one. Now, very quickly, let me deal with one final objection here, and then I'll have you out of here in just a few minutes. Somebody will object at this point and say, but wait a minute, isn't abortion a political issue? And isn't this off limits for the church? Why are we even talking about this this morning? Well, let me respond to that. Yes, abortion is a political issue. But as Denny pointed out, it is much more accurately described as a moral spiritual issue that is politicized. And when you think about it, every moral issue is eventually politicized. It wasn't too many years ago that the redefining of marriage was politicized. Did that mean that Pastor Rex couldn't preach about the biblical definition or preach on the biblical definition of marriage from the pulpit? Well, of course not. Just because a moral issue is politicized does not render it off limits for the pulpit. Now, um, like the Fugitive Slave Act of antebellum America, and like the anti-Semitic laws of Nazi Germany, this pro-abortion ballot amendment is an attack on God's image bearers. And we cannot, as I've already said a couple of times, remain faithful to Christ while remaining silent. Faithful Christians were outspokenly opposed to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which decided, or which basically said, that slave owners in the southern slates could cross over into the northern slates, like Ohio, the free states, like Ohio, to recapture their slaves and drag them back to slavery in the southern states. Now, when that law was passed and put into effect, there was only one faithful response for professing Christians, and that was to defy that law and to become part of the Underground Railroad, which is exactly what um, Pastors Rankin and Pastor, uh, Pastor John Rankin and Pastor John Parker did, Ohio pastors. Rankin's house still stands as a museum overlooking the Ohio River a testament to his courage and his sacrifice because he willingly turned his home in to a stopping point on the Ohio, or I should say on the Underground Railroad. The most fundamental duty of the government is to protect the weak from the strong, but when the government will not do it, then it is the church's job to do that. We're not to make an, uh, an idol of politics, but this is not to say that politics has no place in the Christian life. With freedom come responsibility. You and I are blessed as Americans. Because of God's sovereignty, we live in a country, a nation that is governed of the people, for the people, and by the people. We are the government. And we get to make our voice heard in our vote. And I, I, I just want to say this. Speaking out on behalf of the preborn 
or voting on behalf of the preborn is not an issue of partisanship. It's an issue of lordship. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That means I'm a married man. That means as a married man, he's Lord of my role as a husband. He's Lord of my role as a father. He's the Lord of my role as a grandfather. He's the Lord of my sexuality. He's the Lord of my money. And he is the Lord of my vote. I'm not free, and neither are you, to go into the voting booth and just vote for my pet interests or my selfish interests. I am obligated to surrender my vote to the scrutiny of God's word and to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit and to prayerfully say, Lord, how do I invest my gospel influence in such a way as to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable for us? This is certainly what we would be doing if this was 1860 and we were voting on slavery. Now, so those who say, well, you're a single-issue voter, not at all. I care deeply about many issues. I'm quite engaged in the news, and I care deeply about many issues. But I happen to believe that certain moral issues rise to the top when we go into the voting booth. And I will not vote for a candidate of either party who wants to strip an entire class of our citizenry their most fundamental right, the right to life. To do so is to side with evil. Our allegiance is not to the Republican Party. It is not to the Democrat Party. It is to the Lord Jesus Christ. I got one amen on that. I'll take it. Thank you, brother. We got one charismatic here. Is that right? All right. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there's not one square inch of the entire domain of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not point to and say, that is mine. That is mine. This is our Bonhoeffer moment, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am not exaggerating that point. Here in Ohio, this is our Bonhoeffer moment. Will we be silent like like so much of the church in Germany in 1940, or will we, like Bonhoeffer, expose and stand against this evil? Bonhoeffer showed us through the example of his own life and death that the cost of disciples is oftentimes very costly. But it's not very costly for us right now in Ohio. Now that day, that may change, but right now it doesn't cost much to speak up and to give voice to those who have no voice. So if you want to see the preborn protected, I am pleading with you as your brother in Christ to vote yes on issue one on Tuesday and to vote no in November on that demonic ballot initiative. I'm going to invite the music team or the worship team to come up at this point. And as they're doing that, I just want to say this. On the um, table that I mentioned in the foyer um, are a few things. I mentioned the ballot initiatives actually there with the actual wording. You can pick that up. But there are also some other handouts that would be helpful to you. One in particular that deals with some of the um, arguments that are going to be made from the other side and how to respond to those. But also in your bulletin this morning, you should have gotten uh, this little bulletin insert, which will give you some more information and some good websites there that you can go to to find out more. Um, But uh, I hope this is helpful to you, and I hope you will take to heart these things that I have shared. Let's pray together, and let's let's stand as we get ready to sing. Father, it is in the name of Christ, who is indeed Lord and sovereign over all, that we come before you today and plead with you, Lord, to give us wise thinking, to be like the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what to do. Father, that we would not shrink back or be ashamed or embarrassed of the preborn or of their young moms, but that we would put our money and our vote where our mouths are. Father, give us the courage, the spine, to stand against a culture that is hell-bent on destruction and death. Help us to shine our light brightly, Lord. Use us, we pray. And we do pray, Father, for young moms facing unplanned pregnancies, for young dads facing unplanned pregnancies, and for the little ones they carry. Lord, that you would help us, lead us to them, lead them to us that we might be a voice for them. And Father, we pray that this demonic ballot initiative would fail and fail miserably in November. 
And we ask these things of you today in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.